What Was That Like? contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Can you imagine having a job that required you to live on an island and your primary purpose there was to make sure ships don't run into the land? It's definitely not a job for everyone, but for some people, it's perfect. Spence is one of those people. He's a modern day lighthouse keeper. This is a bit of a different kind of episode for this podcast. Sometimes when I come across opportunities like this, I think, okay, I would find this really interesting, but would other people find it interesting? So when I saw I might have the chance to do this one, I posted it as a poll in the Facebook group, and the vote was unanimous. Everyone wanted to hear what it was like to be a lighthouse keeper. So here we are today. And yes, it really is interesting. Spence told me all about the different aspects of the job and what he has to do each day and the fact that he works seven days a week, but it's okay because he loves his work. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you'd like to support the podcast and keep it going, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, here's Spence, the Lighthouse Keeper. Spence, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, no problem. Happy to be here. And I should mention to our listeners, the noise that you hear in the background is not, it's not an air conditioning unit. It's not anything that we can control. It's the weather where Spence is at the lighthouse. And can you tell us what, what kind of weather is going on right there now? Uh, yeah, definitely. We are, we're looking at sort of higher winds than usual than we, we have now. We are heading into, you know, mid-December, late December, early January. We do get a lot more rough weather in this time. But right now we're looking at between 25 and 30 knot winds, which is pretty considerable. And then they're also southeast winds, which means they blow right on my front door. So <laughs> it's pretty hard to uh, it's pretty hard to escape all the noise, but you, you deal with it. That's the nature of the business. No problem at all. When, when you're up on in the top of that lighthouse, how high in the air is that? Well, Entrance Island, the, the location that I'm at currently, is uh, not a very tall tower. It's actually only 19 meters from the water in total height. So it's actually not a super high tower. It's maybe just over three stories. Let's kind of set the scene. I know you're on an island, and the name of it is Entrance Island, and it's in the Georgia Strait, which is in British Columbia, Canada. You're kind of across the strait there from Vancouver. What is, are you like maybe 15 miles, 20 miles from Vancouver? Uh, yeah, the, no, no more than 20 miles. Uh, we can actually, on a, on a clear day, you can see Vancouver from the island. 
So yeah, the, the way it's situated is Vancouver is on the mainland and then there's a large island just to the west of the mainland that's Vancouver Island. And Vancouver Island actually houses Victoria, which is the capital of BC. And then it has another larger port city called Nanaimo, which is partway uh, north of the island. And where I'm located is I'm actually about eight miles out of the Nanaimo Harbor, where the lighthouse is situated to help guide people into the harbor. Because Vancouver Island and the mainland are actually separated by a whole slew of smaller islands, it's actually fairly dangerous to navigate to go up the Georgia Strait and then find where the the entrance is to the Nanaimo Harbor. So the lighthouse is situated just outside of the harbor to show boats like, okay, now this is where you would go to um, head head to your port side and you can now, now go into the harbor. Obviously, the name Entrance Island. That makes sense. Yes. <laughs> How cold does it get there in the winter? Well, for anybody who's ever sort of lived in, say, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, the, the weather here is actually quite uh, it's quite nice. I mean, it's not Florida nice, but it's, uh, we, we don't see a lot of snow. As a matter of fact, it's very rare that it goes below freezing. So maybe once or twice a year, we'll see a little bit of snow that actually sticks for a day or two, but we see a lot more rain than we do snow. So temperatures right now, like the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing lows of about four degrees Celsius to about nine degrees Celsius. And I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize. I have no idea what that is in Fahrenheit. Well, I've got a handy little Fahrenheit Celsius converter here in front of me. And I know four degrees Celsius is around 39 Fahrenheit. So still just, just above freezing and uh, certainly more or certainly colder than what we would prefer here in Florida. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, I myself, I still go out and do the weather in my shorts. The gentleman that I work with, the the principal keeper, thinks I'm crazy. He says you should never go out in this weather in shorts, but I generally wear shorts even in in this type of weather. So I really don't find it that cold. And um, it's not bad here where I'm located. So I'm lucky. Not all light stations are nearly as lucky to have such uh, glorious weather. I know this is a pretty small island. What else is on the island? I think I saw where you've got actually seven buildings. What are all those buildings? Yeah, there's the, the island itself is only the light station. There is nothing else on the island. So every building on the island has something to do with the light station in some form or another. So the the buildings that are on the island, there's the principal keeper's house, uh, so where where the, the principal guy lives, and then there's the assistant keeper's house, which is where I'm currently staying. There's the tower itself, there's a boathouse and a shop, so like a like a workshop type area. There's a generator building that houses our electrical generators and a machine shop. There is a small garden shed, 
there's a uh, recycle shed, there's a hazardous materials shed, and then there's one more building which is a little bit unique, and that is the, the water cistern. And that's pretty much all the buildings that are on the island. Is this something, to do a job like this, is it something you go to school for, or how, how do you learn, how do you get the skills to do this? Well, <laughs> if I, I, I seem to remember, I think it was like maybe grade six that you learned, you learned about clouds and you learn like the different, the different types of clouds, the alto cumulus and the, the whatnot, all the different type of stuff. But when you apply for the job, there's really not a whole lot of schooling or anything you need ahead of time. What you do need is you need your radio operator certificate, which means that you are licensed to be able to use a radio on the airwaves in the world. And everybody who uses a marine radio anywhere in the world is actually supposed to have a license. A lot of people don't, but uh, you're supposed to have a license to use the actual radio. So you need that before you can get the job. And then the only other thing that you are required to have is your first aid. You must have a first aid certificate. Those are the only two things that you need before you go into the job. Everything else is pretty much on the job training. And I know a lot of what you do is uh, is weather related. And actually, we should mention, because you mentioned this uh, before we hit record, that in a few minutes, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes from now, you're going to have a weather report come up on the radio, which is mandatory, and you need to listen to that. So I say we just keep recording and listen to that uh, <laughs> as part of the uh, podcast here. That'll be interesting, too. So, that, so people can be ready for that uh, when it comes up. Right. Weather is one of our primary, one of our primary jobs that we do every day. And I, by every day, I mean seven days a week. So every single day. And the weather is reported every three hours from 3.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. And you have to report your conditions that you are actually seeing right at the moment. And those conditions consist of several factors. You have to report the skies, whether it's cloudy, partly cloudy, overcast, obscured, whatever. You then need to report your visibility, how far it is that you can see if there's, you know, maybe a fog bank or something along the lines. Sometimes you just can only see eight kilometers or 10 kilometers. But you have to report the distance that you can see anywhere from 15 kilometers to I can't see anything at all. You then report the weather. So the weather itself, whether it's raining, whether it's snowing, drizzle, anything that's actually like a physical type of, of weather, you would report that. Then you have to go into wind and you uh, report wind speeds and wind direction. So you need to be able to use the tools on hand, which uh, for wind direction, we look at a flag and you use the flag and a compass and you can figure out which sort of direction the wind is going. And then we use instruments for wind speeds to tell us, you know, a, within a general few knots exactly how 
how fast the wind is going. The last thing that we need to report for mariners is is the water itself. So is the water wavy? Is there is it calm? Is there small waves? Is there really big waves? Is there swells? And these are all things that we need to report in the full weather. And the last thing that we would be reporting on is stuff that we might see in the distance. So if it's not bad on Entrance Island, I, I, it's not raining or anything along those lines, but I can see it's raining over Vancouver, I would report rain showers to the east distance. So you kind of have to tell about everything that you see around you like pretty much all the way past the horizon and further. And when you're doing this reporting, you're doing this over the radio, so any any boaters in the vicinity would be able to hear this. Is that right? That's who your audience is? No. I, the, the way it works on our end is we report to the Central Coast Guard Agency, and then the Central Coast Guard Agency takes all – the reports from all the different light stations. There's 27 light stations in, in BC. They take all those reports and then they put them online. So you can go online at any time and you can view those reports from all the different light stations telling you exactly what they're seeing at that hour. All right, well, let's talk about your kind of day-to-day stuff. Now, you mentioned someone else is is on the island with you. It's just the two of you, or is that right? Yeah, there's mandatory two people per station for safety's sake. You can't have a person alone on a station. If something were to happen, you need a second person in case of any kind of an emergency. So there's always two people. For somebody who actually lives on the station in a permanent spot. So they are set up, they live there, and that's their absolute career. They call that like permanent. You can bring your family. So you can bring your wife, you can bring your children, you can you can bring whomever, you know, whoever you want to have live with you. So there's a minimum of two people, maximum of however big your family happens to be. And each of you, each of the two people, you have each have your own house. Yeah, there's there's only one station in BC that's a combined residence, and that's only because the station is way out on a crop of rocks, and it's a single building that has the tower and the residence and everything all in a single building. Everywhere else is situated either on an island or on a peninsula somewhere that there's actually a little more space, and there's usually three dwellings in each location. So you have a principal keeper's dwelling, you have your assistant keeper dwelling, and then you have a spare dwelling for when people come to work on the island for like carpenters or engineers or anybody who needs to work on something, they can live in the spare house. So yeah, you're completely separate from, you don't need to live with somebody in the same living space and drive yourself nuts. (laughs) Okay. So it sounds like you have essentially the same day-to-day job as the principal keeper, but you guys kind of alternate hours. Is that how it works? Right. Well, the days, it, it depends on the principal. Every principal is kind of different. The principal is your your boss. The principal is the one who sort of oversees everything on the island. And they're the ones that sort of dictate how 
how things are worked out. And generally what happens is there's a morning shift and then there's an afternoon shift. And the morning shift is the one that has to get up at three and they do all the reports from three to noon. And then the evening shift would do everything from noon to 9.30 to the end of the day. And the gentleman that I'm working with, he's not big on waking up early. And I love waking up early. So I do the morning shifts because I enjoy it. I like to be up at, at three and it gives me time to do whatever I need to do. And I like it when it's dark and yeah, it's all good. So it works out nicely in, in that regard. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1 and sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com what Code 25 what? Sounds like a perfect match. How, how many days a week do you work? I mean, it's, it's got to be done every day, right? Every day. So it's not like a job where you do five days and then you get your weekend off. You have to report the weather seven days a week. Now, that being said, it's not like doing the weather is the only thing that we do. There's lots of other jobs and tasks and, and whatnot, whether it's landscaping, lawn mowing, maintenance, machine work, like whatever. So we do that type of work from Monday to Friday. And then on Saturday and Sunday, we relax. We take it easy between our reports and then just do whatever it is that we want to do, you know, on your own. What's a typical day like? I know you said you, you're up and working at three but what is it that you do? Uh, how do you fill that day? Well, uh, for me, I do a lot of research. I've been doing a lot of research. I do have a YouTube channel and I've been, I, I am new to this job. I've only been doing this for a, a little over two months now. And there's so much to learn, so much interesting things to know not just about lighthouses, but about the Coast Guard, about marine living and, and boating and all this kind of stuff. So I do a lot of research. So in the morning before it's really too early to go out, 
I'm on the computer and I, I do some of my own YouTube stuff. I answer emails and communicate with other lighthouse keepers and whatnot. And then after your 9.30 report is when you go out to do the outside stuff. So uh, whether it's, it's, as I say, you, there's a lot of lawn here. You have to mow all the lawn in the nicer, in the nicer weather. The buildings need maintenance. We're in a rough area. You do get sometimes when you get rain, you're exposed to the elements. So stuff needs to be cleaned regularly. You need to paint stuff regularly to maintain a certain look. The island is a it's a heritage site. So it is required that everything is kept to a certain level of maintenance. And that's all the responsibility of the two people that are on the island. So I'll work something semi-physical from like 9.30, uh, from 10 to maybe about 3 and then have lunch in the middle there. And then after 3, for me, it's just free time. And I do whatever, make my dinner, read a book, watch something, play a video game, and then go to bed. What about groceries? I mean, you're out in the middle of the strait on this tiny little island. You can't just uh, run down to the store and pick something up when you need it. <laughs> nope, that's very, very true. Um, we are um, one of the things that takes a lot of, of getting used to is understanding that if you run out of something, you're you're out. There, there's no running to Seven Eleven for milk or anything like that. You need to understand that you have only a certain amount of time that you can get whatever you need. So we get groceries once a month. And what happens is the Coast Guard actually uses a helicopter to bring all the groceries out to the different stations in a certain area on a certain day of the month. So there's like four different light stations in my group and then the helicopter will go out on a day and they'll deliver to all four of those stations for the one day of the month. So what we do is we buy all our groceries online. We use whatever service happens to deliver to the main office because we have to send all of our groceries to the main office. And then it gets accepted by the main office and then held there for a couple of days until the chopper's ready to bring it out to you. Have you ever run out of food? I have not. <laughs> now, uh, I'm, I've been lucky because I knew people who were in the business before I started. And every single person that I've talked to, both before I started and after I've started, have told me that their first month of employment they ran out of food. <laughs> so I went into this with my biggest concern being, oh my God, do I have enough food? <laughs> so I made sure that my first month I had enough food. If it were me, I'd probably have a spreadsheet out with each day and each meal and uh, have everything, a uh, whole list based on that. Well, I did that for before I started. When I knew when I was being sent somewhere, I sort of sat myself down and I said, okay, so how much can I eat in a week and what sort of things can I do? Like, for example, I would think if I go and make a big chili, a big pot of chili, that 
pot of chili should last me maybe five days that I can have one meal of chili for five days. And then I know what I like for breakfast. I kind of eat the same thing for breakfast every day. I'm very particular that way. So I know if I have to eat 30 days of breakfast, how much I need for to make sure that I bring that with me. So I, I kind of did that before I got my first posting. And so it worked out pretty well. Funny thing is, for the second month that I was here and I was supposed to get my groceries, they actually didn't come because there was an emergency and the helicopters were needed somewhere else. And so for four days, they didn't come. And I was, I was getting low on... Um, that's the radio they're going to be doing there. I don't have to do this one, lucky for me, but I do have to listen. So they're going to be going to be doing all their reports. The weather is really not very good for the radio. So what we heard are those those are other nearby keepers talking about their weather report. Yeah, yeah, from other stations. Okay. So they'll come back on. Yeah, the weather's really bad right now, so it makes the signal a little bit difficult to hear. Oh, yeah, see there? <laughs> they have big waves out in Victoria right now. <laughs> they got six foot, six foot moderate waves at the moment. So, yeah, they're, they're seeing some pretty big winds out, out, uh, Victoria at the moment. So anyway, that was a weather report. It, it goes pretty, pretty quickly. And, uh, as I say, I didn't have to report on this one. So. What what actual maintenance do you have to do? I mean, it's kind of I'm sure it's probably a common misconception that you know if you're a lighthouse keeper, all you got to do is go up, and make sure that light's on, right? I mean, <laughs> but obviously there's as you as you've mentioned, there's a lot more to it than that. But what kind of maintenance is actually involved with that big light bulb? Well, um, I, actually, oddly enough, the all of the stations, the actual lighthouse itself is completely automated. So that's everything from the power, it uses solar energy, uses a large bank of batteries, and it it the light itself is all, it, it uses a sensor to detect how light, how dark it is, and it all comes on automatically. And even to the point that if a bulb burns out, there's four extras already in the mechanism to replace it, and it will replace it automatically. So there shouldn't be any situation where the light is, where it goes dark, obviously, since you got a lot of spares. Right. Well, the, the, a bulb is, because it's not, again, like technology is really different now from what you see in the movies. And movies generally look at an era that's, you know, a hundred years ago, and they use big, giant, incandescent bulbs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now, a lot of the lighthouses, they'll use LEDs in in a small, tiny little bulb that the lenses reflect the all the light so well that it actually doesn't take 
barely any power and bulbs will last three to ten years so the likelihood of a light ever going out is pretty slim and how far away can that light be seen there I mean, if it, is if it were on a clear clear night it's it's actually you're really lucky i just did a youtube video about this like last week so there, there's an actual formula for figuring out how far you can see from the because the earth is curved it all comes down to how it works with the horizon so the light travels there's a formula that is the square root of the distance divided by a number which represents the curve of the earth equals how far that light will go before it hits the horizon so entrance is 19 meters tall and when you plug that number into the formula, the light will actually travel for 16 kilometers before the curve of the Earth becomes a problem. And anything further than that, you can't see it if your eyes were right on the water, like if you're at water level. So because you are not at water level, you're like six feet tall, you're on a boat, you're whatever, uh, that distance actually goes a little bit further. And the entrance island lighthouse is rated at 15 miles for its for how far you can see the light. Now, if you're, say, at the top of Cypress Mountain, which is in West Vancouver, which is maybe 40 kilometers from where I am right now, if you're at the top of the mountain and it's an absolutely crystal clear, beautiful day, you could probably see the light, but you, you don't need a lighthouse when you're on top of a mountain. It doesn't help you. The idea is <laughs> to true. see it when you're on the water, right? In order for ships to be able to identify which lighthouse they're actually looking at, are there different colors or different types of lights or how, how do they identify where, what, what they're seeing? Yeah, um, every lighthouse is has a little bit of a variation to how they're set up. And for entrance, it's quite simple. It's a white flashing light every five seconds. So it's a very simple, uh, simple setup. But there's lots of different variations for different lighthouses. And it could be maybe a three second flash or a four second flash or a 10 second flash, or it may be two really quick flashes at a five second space or it could involve colors, there's red light, there's green light, there's blue light, there's all these sort of combinations, and each lighthouse is fairly unique. So depending on what you're seeing on the water will tell you which lighthouse you happen to be looking at. That makes sense. Do, do you have any, is there any concern about security? I mean, do you have weapons there? Or <laughs> I, I can't imagine... There would be any incentive for anyone to try to intrude on that island, but well, <laughs> is there any thought about that? It's it's funny because I I'm Canadian. I'm a Canadian guy, and you know all Canadian tends to you know the the, the joke is like how do you make a Canadian say sorry? And the answer is you step on his foot. And he'll say sorry. <laughs> so it, it, as a Canadian, it's kind of, we, we don't look at violence or we don't look at this protection as our first 
train of thought. And I know that it does happen. Uh, a lot of my American friends are like that, where it's always like, I need to be protected. I need a gun. I need, you know, all these things to make myself feel safe and, and whatnot. But I've never, I've never felt that way here at all. Uh, entrance is close to the, the mainland. We get kayakers coming out to the island. People come from Nanaimo in tiny kayak boats. And because it's, it's government land, it's crown land. So it's not like it's all fenced off and you can't go there or anything like that. The public is welcome. We have, uh, visitor logs and we have all this kind of thing. You know, we, we like visitors. Visitors break up our day. So yeah, I, I don't think the idea of, of having to protect yourself ever came up. And if, if there was ever an emergency situation of any kind, I mean, one of our primary jobs is we are emergency relief. That's the whole point. Somebody goes over in the water and they have to get out. They come out of the water. We are the ones who perform emergency services on them. We offer them a, a place of security, a place to stay. So yeah, it's not about protection. It's about, it's about helping. So that's good. That, that's a good outlook. <laughs> I was surprised to find this out. You're married. Yes. How, how often do you get to see your wife? Uh, well, <laughs> my my life with my wife is a little bit is is interesting. We've we've been married for uh, about two and a half years now, and um, uh, we've been together for over five. And in all of that time, we spent a lot of time apart. Uh, she's from the Philippines. I was working in Hong Kong, and I would spend three months in Hong Kong, two weeks in the Philippines, three months in Hong Kong, two months in the Philippines. So not seeing my wife for long periods of time is pretty regular for me. I've been on this location now for a little over two months, and my wife is coming out for the holidays. She's coming out for for Christmas. So she'll spend a week out here on the island with me and then go back and, and do whatever she does for her life. Now, because I'm still new and I don't have a permanent location, it has been discussed between us that once I have a permanent spot, once I've I've been given a place that they say, okay, this is where you live. Then likely she'll come, she'll either come and live with me or it'll be a spot like this where it's easy enough to get to a port where she could live somewhere close by and then come and visit on a semi-regular basis. So, and that works for both of us. Yeah, I guess if you're both happy with that, I guess it takes a certain type of person, I would imagine. Not everyone needs the constant companionship of another person to get through the day. So it sounds like that it kind of works out pretty well for both of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. And as far as I can tell, she's pretty happy with it. It's not like, you know, when we, when we get together, it's like, hey, hey, how's it going? Ah, it's okay. Like, <laughs> you know, we're always like really excited to see each other and we spend a lot of time together you know, in the time that we do spend together. So, yeah, I I think it's, I mean, it's healthy for us. It's not, um, I think it just comes down to the fact that neither one of us have that, that 
unsatiable need to have that company, you know? I got a couple of questions from listeners. Nivea asks, when storm or hurricane waves crash against lighthouses, do they ever suffer, suffer structural damage? <laughs> well, okay, so I have, I have a story for you, and, and it's, uh, it's a pretty good one. Tri- Triple Island is the scary lighthouse in BC. It's the one that's, that's way out from, it's in the middle of the ocean, it's on a pile of rocks, and it's that single building where uh, when it gets really, really stormy, waves go right over the entire building. And the gentleman that I'm working with right now, he used to work at that station. And one time during a uh, extraordinarily extreme storm, he actually had full-size trees come through his window in his in his bedroom. So, <laughs> the, the I, I guess what happened was a, a a log boom or something got disconnected from a tug, and several of the large logs went through different windows in the building. And one of the windows was his bedroom and came very close to actually hitting him as well. So it does happen. It does happen. The Several of the stations that are quite open to the elements and require a lot more care than others. There's another island, uh, Green Island, I believe, where they have ropes between all the buildings. And if if you want to go from one building to another, you have to use the rope. You connect yourself to the rope and then w- using the rope to go from one building to another because they've lost cows off the island, like full cows. Just from being the high winds, they just get blown away? High winds and big waves, yeah. Uh, oh so, boy. yeah, it, it, can be pretty, uh, it can be pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one. Zach, actually, Zach has a couple of questions. Has your lighthouse ever proven critical to someone's safety? And then his other question is, are lighthouses mostly nostalgic now, not really needed because of uh, GPS? I personally have not had any dealings with an emergency yet. So thank goodness for that. Let's hope that, you know, I don't have to deal with anything too crazy. It's, it would be good. But the, um, the, the principal keeper here has saved about a dozen lives in his 26 year stint in, um, being a lighthouse keeper, nine of them on this island alone. So, um, yeah, there, there was, there's been boats overturned or people in the water in emergency situations. It sounds like you're due for something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want (laughs) to, no, I don't want to (laughs) do. So yeah, there are, there have been emergency situations and they do get, they have saved lives. So it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Uh, as for the, sorry, what was this, the second question? Uh, our lighthouse is still needed you know, with the, with GPS. Do you still, do you still really need them or just nostalgic? Well, a lot of the bigger boats, like obviously cruise ships, ferries, a lot of the bigger, the large cruise ships and the, the carry boats and whatnot, they all have 
they all have GPS and everything to tell them exactly where they are. But there's something about the physicality of being able to look out the window and see a lighthouse and know where you are. It just is something that I don't believe will ever go away. It's just something about being on the water. Now, there are a lot of smaller boats, like there's a lot of pleasure boats, there's a lot of uh, fishing boats and whatnot that don't have all the fancy equipment. And they do still rely heavily on boys and lighthouses to show them the right way to go. So it's not something that will be going away anytime soon. And, uh, and, and that goes for lighthouses all over the world, which is why lighthouses did eventually go to automation because they are still needed and that light is still essential. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not putting people at the station. If you actually see a boat that runs aground or even capsizes, what would you do? What's the, what do you do to, when you see something like that? Uh, first thing you always do immediately right away is you call Victoria. You call the base and you say emergency situation. You tell them everything that you can about what's going on because getting emergency relief to anywhere is minimum half hour, 45 minutes. And half hour sitting in the water is deadly because the waters here are cold and they will they will kill you quickly just from hypothermia. So very, very important. You must get the word out to emergency services because even if I pull somebody from the water and they require emergency services, there's only so much that I can do on the island, yeah, we have an AED and we have warming blankets and we have all these kind of things, but our abilities are limited to, you know, what we can do. They still need to go to a hospital somewhere and that will take time. So yeah, number one, call head office immediately. Number two, do what you can to assist in any way you can. Always keep your eyes on the situation. Keep a radio handy so that you can report any changes. If it's safe to go out and get whoever is in trouble, then do it. But we're technically, we're not allowed to leave the island. We can't get in a boat and go out and get them. We're, we're not allowed to. It's, it's part of the, the, the charter for the Coast Guard. There's certain rules for getting in a boat and going out to get someone and we can't uh, we, we we can't actually do that. So man, I can imagine that would that would some situations would create kind of a a moral conundrum there. If you're if you see somebody in the water, they're not that far out in the water, and they're drowning or their boat's going down or something, and you have to stay on the island. That that'd be a tough decision. It's a tough call, and and I understand that uh, being put into such a position, I can understand why. In many instances in the past, the keepers just said, screw this, I'm going out, I'm getting them. I'm not, I can't let somebody die while I'm watching them, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a tough call. It's a very, very tough call. You don't want to just let somebody die when you can, you can physically do something to save them. Right. But I can understand the rule though. I mean, then at that point, the lighthouse itself is unmanned and, you know, there could be other problems that result uh, from that. So, Well, exactly. It, that, that's what it all comes down to is, you know, what's the bigger risk? What is the, um, you know, 
where and 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 like anything it also comes down to liability right you need to be sure that everybody is covered safety wise and everybody's butt is covered in the long run because anything that does happen there's going to be an investigation and it's always like that for any sort of incident sure so yeah yeah is there any wildlife on the island i know it's too small there's probably no bears or anything but would you see anything else <laughs> well when we say wildlife we do usually think like bears deers tigers stuff like that but uh yeah this place is way too small but i'll tell you you can fit four or five hundred sea lions here and they are loud and smelly holy smokes <laughs> and um we we have a family of five sea otters that live under one of the um old docks that is is abandoned and they they live under there uh we have four eagles that sit on our weather equipment and screw it all up but they they sit up there every day and uh you know, look out on the water or whatever it is they, they do. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's lots of different lots of different things on the island. We have lots of snakes, lots of small birds, lots of seagulls, no rats. Not one. There's not one rat on the entire island. So that's kinda cool. Wow. All right. Well I just got a few few more questions as we as we wrap this up. What do you yeah. like most about this job? Well, you know what? I love the isolation. I am not going to lie. I am I'm tired of cities. I'm tired of crowds. I'm tired of driving to work every day and traffic and all these kind of things. I just love that, you know, I wake up, I do my work, I read a book, I relax. There's no, I'm not stressed out. It, nothing. I just, yeah, it's pretty mm. nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine right now somebody is probably listening to this on their way to work. Uh, they're sitting in traffic. <laughs> and, and, Enjoying uh, themselves immensely, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and they're probably saying, you know what? I didn't have to get up at 3 o'clock this morning either. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a different job for everyone. There, there is a different job for everyone, but, but on the flip side, just to, you know, just to think about it, I go to bed about seven. So it's not like I sit up till midnight and then have to get up at three. That would be ludicrous. I, I would die in like two weeks, right? Like you can't live on three hours sleep, but because I'm not obligated to keep your time, I can create my own schedule. I get a full eight hours sleep. I wake up rested and happy and I have no problems with it because I am not adhered to the, I, I don't need to conform to the social time schedule. Right. Yeah. Your schedule is more based on when you have to do weather reports and, and uh, everything related to the job as opposed to exactly. social constructs. Yeah. And, yep. and you, I would imagine you, you don't get bored because you have full internet access. I have full internet access, but in reality, I don't, I don't use it that much for entertainment. I use it. I mean, I like doing YouTube videos. I enjoy bringing this information to the public and I like sort of corresponding with people through email and, and comments and that kind of thing. That's fun. But for entertainment, I, I read. I've been here two months. I've read six books. 
it's it's amazing. You know, I, I've played three Mass Effect games at like three, what is it, 30 hours each game in two months. That's amazing, <laughs> you know, to have that kind of time to be able to do whatever you want is, is absolutely phenomenal. Is there anything about this that you don't like? Or anything that you would change? You know, I, I don't, I don't think so. I really don't think so because everything that I need, I can buy online. If I want to, if I need new clothes, I can go to walmart.com and I can buy something and ship it to head office. They'll send it with my groceries. Like no big deal. Nothing is, nothing is priority. Nothing is rush, rush, rush. So yeah, I don't feel the need to change anything at all. This is, for me, it's an absolutely idyllic lifestyle. Would you? It sounds like this is a good job for someone who may be somewhat of an introvert. You know, since there's not much face-to-face uh, -face human interaction. Would you say that's the case? Well, yes and no. I mean, there are certain things you need to be able to get along with the person that you work with. And that is essential because there's a lot of things that you have to do together. And so you, it's not like you never see anybody. You need to be able to do that. You do also need to be able to use the radio. Uh, you, you can't feel adverse to speaking up on the radio and using communication equipment with several other people. And there's no privacy because there's no... The, the only privacy that you have is if you have a cell phone, but a lot of the stations, you don't even get cell phone service or you don't have internet service. Your only communication is on a party line where everybody can hear you. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's like no privacy at all. Someone listen to this and they're somewhere near Entrance Island. Is it okay for them to just come and visit or should they contact you ahead of time or how if somebody wanted to do that well yeah some somebody can contact me i do have a facebook page that uh you know i i check it regularly and whatnot people can get a hold of me through there very very easily and uh they can let me know that they're coming around and we'll be ready we'll give them a tour well there's a picnic table if they want to sit down and have lunch and you know all these they better bring their own food though right yeah, yeah, I'm not sharing mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's nice. Actually, one of the nice things is if you are ever visiting a station like this is, is a piece of fruit because we don't get a lot of fruit. Fruit only lasts a week, a week and a half in the fridge, and then it's no good. So, you know, it, it's nice to get an apple every once in a while or an orange, a little bit of fruit. So, so bring some fruit for your lightkeeper. That's a good plan, yeah. What I'm picturing maybe might happen at some point is instead of waiting for the for the helicopter every 30 days, you might eventually be, have a drone delivery. Has there been any talk about that? Drone delivery would be amazing, but I don't think the... I'm not sure how it would work. I, I mean, they, if the drone was able to go the 10 miles from Nanaimo to the island and back, then that might work. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm not sure how far drone delivery would actually work. 
Yeah, that's a long way to go. And and the the, uh, weight of a lot of food or clothing or whatever it's delivering, probably not economical at this point. But I could imagine at some point in the future that might be that might be something that works. I mean, if I really, really, really wanted to, I, I had somebody ask me before if if I've ever had a pizza delivered. If I really wanted a pizza, I could get it delivered. There's a service. There's a guy in Nanaimo who has a boat, and I can call him up and I can say, dude, I really need a pizza. Can you bring me out a pizza? And I'll have the pizza delivered to his office. He would put it on his boat and he would bring it out to me. But it would cost me 150 bucks to do that. And I don't need a pizza $150 bad. <laughs> no pizza is that good. No, no pizza is that good. But the option is there. So in, in the same instance, like my wife will end up going to Nanaimo. She'll be bringing some stuff. She'll be catching a ride with this gentleman. It will cost her $150 to come out to the island. But she can bring a whole bunch of stuff with her and and whatnot. So those options are available. And if money was no limit, then yeah, whatever you could get, you could get stuff delivered anytime you want. But better to just you know get the helicopter to do it once a month. It's easier, right? <laughs> yeah, that pizza would be like the ultimate impulse purchase. It sounds like. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you mentioned your YouTube channel. Uh, you're also on Facebook. We will have, and I looked at your YouTube channel. I haven't watched all the videos yet, but boy, you, each one seems like it goes into a particular uh, aspect of island lighthouse keeper life. Like, how do you, you know, what do you eat <laughs> and, uh, you know, what do you do every day and stuff like this. So uh, that's really interesting. So people want to check that out. And so we'll have links to your YouTube channel and your uh, Facebook page as well on the show notes for this episode which it's going to be whatwasthatlike.com forward slash 40, because this will be episode 40. Spence, anything else you want to add that we haven't talked about? No, that's wonderful. I think I think we got just about everything. Well, I appreciate your time and uh, hope you have calm seas there today. No bad weather. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me. I, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Hey, I just wanted to mention something before we head out the door. I got an email from a listener that really made my day. You might recall episode number 30, which is titled, Travis Lost His Son. It's a really heart-wrenching story about a father, Travis, whose 16-year-old son, Brandon, died from an asthma attack. It's really sad, but it actually has a positive ending. So if you haven't heard that yet, you really should go listen to it. It's episode number 30. Well, Michelle listened to that episode, and it prompted her to send me this message. Just listen to the episode where Travis lost his son. I have listened to every podcast you have posted, and you are such a great host. You let people speak, and that's really what people who go through terrible things need, just someone to listen. I was feeling pretty down today. This made me appreciate life more. Thank you. And I think that's awesome. So thank you, Michelle, for those kind words. And now for you, yes, I'm talking to you right here in your ear now as you listen to this episode, I'd love to hear from you too. If you have any comment at all on the episode you just heard or any of the previous episodes, I'd seriously love to hear about it. 
The easiest way is to send me an email at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. I guarantee I'll read it, and it's pretty likely I'll reply to it as well. Or if you want, you can go to the website and click on the contact button and just send me a message from there. Or how about this? You could record a little audio clip, which is pretty easy to do on your phone now, and send that to me in an email. Maybe I'll just play it right here on the podcast. If nothing else, you can at least join the private Facebook group at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. However you decide you want to contact me, I'd love to hear from you. See you in two weeks.